Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Let's go ahead and get started. It is 8.47. And um, we are in um, Matthew chapter 6, kind of at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, um, Pastor Peter began the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. The Sermon of the Mount begins by saying, And Jesus sat down. So that gives me, uh, affords me what I'm doing right now, sitting down when I'm teaching. Um, I I was reminded by one of uh, the Lakeview men that I will receive no sympathy by telling you this, but I'm going to try anyways. Um, But I had a little gout flare-up. The ripe old age of 33, I suffer from gout every now and then. So um, I can't really stand on my... That's why I'm sitting, so I, I don't want to be a distraction. Um, but we're in uh, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 34. That's a lot, so I need to get started. And I promised Pastor Peter I was going to get through all of this. Last time I promised him, I failed on my promise. I didn't get through all of it, so... Uh, <laughs> Let me pray for us, and we'll read, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for how true it is, how um, enlivening it is, Father, how it speaks to our hearts, how it teaches us how to live, how it teaches us about you. Open our hearts to your word, Father. Let us be receptive. Let us be uh, moldable, Father. Fashion our hearts and our minds towards uh, your desire for true disciples. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let me read this passage of Scripture, and then we'll jump right in. Again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in, in you, uh, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, 
Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's a very direct relationship between Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through um, 18, which is what Pastor Peter led us through last week, and what I read. Uh, The relationship, obviously, contextually, it's immediate. Jesus didn't stop the sermon, you know, wait another Sunday, and then come back and start like we're doing now. This is part of one one discourse. But this is one of those few cases where, uh, in your Bible, uh, where you have those kind of chapter markers, um, kind of those headings, your Bible might have a heading that says, lay up treasures in heaven, do not be anxious type thing. This is one of those settings where that, that's a little unhelpful in that it kind of visually breaks the connection of what Jesus is trying to make, starting on verse 19. If you read verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but, uh, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The last statement is about reward, is about something of value, is about something, perhaps a treasure. Look at verse 19. Do not lay for yourself treasures on earth. There's this direct logical connection. In the first verses, 1 through 18, Jesus encouraged His disciples to perform their righteous deeds driven only by the desire to please God. He's, he's dealing with this issue of hypocrisy. These Pharisees prayed a certain way because they wanted attention. They fasted a certain way because they wanted attention. And Jesus, basically the, the passage before, He's saying, do these things for the purpose of desiring and pleasing God only. And as a result of this proper motivation, this is what's key. As a result of having a proper motivation in how we practice our righteous deeds, the disciples were ensured to enjoy God's reward. In this section, verses 19 through 24, Jesus exhorted disciples to value heavenly reward above any earthly treasure. He's beginning to point his followers' attention, and what he taught his disciples, an extension is being taught to us, to the things of heaven. He's beginning to point their attention to immaterial things. We would call them blessings. To things not made by human hands. But more specifically, to things that are permanent. Things that don't go away. Heavenly rewards, as it were. But I want you to notice one thing. Look at verse 19 and look at verse 20. Verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures. Verse 20 says, But lay up for yourselves treasures. So Jesus is going to begin to make this value distinction. There are these two realities called treasures, and we are to seek one and not seek the others. Earthly treasures, heavenly treasures. But... Not only are we expected to pursue one, the point I'm trying to make is we're commanded to pursue one. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. This is a command. When Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, you know, he's not, he's not teaching some sort of austerity gospel. Have, have you all heard of the prosperity gospel? Do you know what the prosperity gospel is? This teaching that, you know, my opinion, wicked teaching, that promotes this idea of your best life now. 
You know, the idea that the Christian life is best lived by getting more stuff. The stuff you're supposed to be getting, because that's what Christ has promised you. And that stuff belongs in the now. So that first verse on 19, what he is not saying, is that he's not saying that they should not be craving something rewarding as a result of following Jesus. Quite the opposite. He's offering them... This is key. I'm, I'm, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this, on, on the, 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 the issue of, of God, Jesus offering His disciples reward rewards, because when we get to the tail end of this passage, it'll all make sense. But the, 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 the point Jesus is trying to make is here is He wants us to have a goal. He wants us to have a direction of expecting a reward. Now, we got to be careful with that, and we'll talk a little bit about that um, in just a few minutes. But there's this expectation. There's this offering of a reward that Jesus gives to us. Um, look at verse uh, 3 and 4 of chapter 6. He tells them, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at verse 6. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verses 17 and 18. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, The question of value, the question of expecting a reward or a treasure, what is the different fundamental difference between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures? What is Jesus getting at to here in terms of which one is more valuable than the other one? Or or how is their value determined? Well, from what we read on earlier, one difference is that heavenly treasures are incorruptible. You see that... In um, verse 19, uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, verse 20, But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Moths and worms cannot destroy your heavenly inheritance. Another difference is that heavenly treasures are invulnerable to theft. Okay? So we live in a society that is moving more and more and more towards immaterial, earthly blessings, like digital stuff. Okay, so your bank account, when you log in, there's a digital number that tells you how much money you have. And uh, newsflash, uh, that's not, like you can't touch that. And what if somebody, so there might be this kind kind of filter that says, oh, because that's ethereal, you know, it can't be touched, I can't lose it just as easily as if I lost my wallet. You know, or what? Well, you can have your identity stolen. Someone can hack into your bank account and take all your money. But the inheritance that awaits for us in heaven is is invulnerable to this. No one can take away what Christ has promised to give us. The Apostle Peter put it this way in First Peter. He said, "Christ has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable." undefiled, and unfading. So bottom line, Jesus is commanding His disciples to devote their lives to the pursuit of deeds of righteousness through which they would accumulate 
heavenly treasures rather than striving to amass worldly wealth. I'm going to say that again. Bottom line, this is, there's a quick uh, 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 bit on, on these first two verses because it's important to what we're going to look at in just a little bit. But Jesus is commanding His disciples. Chapter 6 is Jesus commanding His disciples to devote their lives to the deeds of to live lives uh, to deeds of righteousness through which they would accumulate heavenly treasures rather than striving to amass worldly wealth. The question is, why? Why is Jesus so concerned that we fix our eyes on receiving heavenly rewards that, frankly, we might not experience now. More than likely, we won't experience now. But rewards that are awaiting for us in heaven. Why is He leading us to look on something that is to come that will be permanent? And at last we get to verse 21. This is the verse that unlocks this second part of chapter 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How does this unlock what we're about to talk about? The location of our treasure will determine the condition of our hearts. Not just in moral terms. I'm not just saying that if, if, our, our, if, our, if our treasure is based on worldly things, that our hearts uh, are characterized by materialism and greed and, 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 and sensualness and all that kind of stuff. While that may be true, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is the location of our treasure will determine the condition of our hearts as it relates to anxiety and contentment. If we place our hearts on earthly treasures, our hearts will, in fact, the condition of our hearts will inevitably lead to anxiety. Spiritual anxiety. And if you look at verse 25 and on, this is the focus of Jesus' teaching. So, I, I, I wanted to take that bit of a kind of pre-introduction to make that statement of, of why it might seem unrelated that he's talking about laying up treasures in heaven, verses 19 through 24. He's talking about wealth. He's talking about money. He's talking about, you know, uh, don't, don't worry about the material things. And then all of a sudden, it, it's, as, it's as if he makes a 90 degree turn and now starts talking about anxiety. And that's not the case. You're about to see why this one leads to the other. So moving on from verses moving on to verses 24 through 35 notice how Jesus turns his attention to the topic of spiritual anxiety based on earthly matters look at verse 25 he says therefore i tell you do not be anxious about your life look at verse 28 and why are you anxious look at verse 31 therefore do not be anxious Look at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. So, clearly, clearly Jesus' concern in this section of Scripture has to deal with anxiety. We're going to define what type of anxiety and we're going to define why that's important. But clearly, this is what Jesus is thinking of in this section. 
common question I would ask is, why do people get, get anxious? How, how does someone become anxious? What would you say if I ask you, why do people become anxious? So the audience participation part of the class. Because they're looking at the situation, the situation not through Jesus' eyes. They're getting consumed by what it looks like instead of keeping their eyes on Jesus. Fear. Fear. Let me give you just a real simple um, paradigm, I think. In a basic sense, anxiety comes from focusing on self rather than God. At at its most reducible sense, anxiety happens when we focus first and primarily on ourselves rather than on God. Now why? Well, focusing on one's ability to provide rather than on God's goodness, would lead to anxiety. If if I begin my day focusing on what I can do for myself, rather than on counting the blessings that God has for my life, rather than focusing on God's good provision, which one of those two avenues is going to lead to anxiety? It's a rhetorical question. The chief concern is to supply our own needs which then causes our hearts to become set on earthly things to meet those needs, which consequently then our hearts begin to long for those earthly things, and then those earthly things become treasures. So do you see the logical progression? As soon as we set our focus on us about the things that we need, Inevitably, we have started down the path of anxiety. So can you then hear verse 21 in the background? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Can you hear that in the background? Can you hear that as kind of as the, the, the backdrop of what's going, what happens after verse 21? So what Jesus does in this section is he, he teaches that anxiety is a type of spiritual and moral sickness that can be traced to three factors in our lives. The first one is having your treasure in the wrong place. So here's how anxiety and earthly treasures are connected. I'm going to read this a couple times because um, it was not an original thought, which is why I can say it's brilliant because I didn't come up with it. Um, but it says, the more we gather possessions... So the, 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 this is how anxiety and earthly treasures are, are connected. The more we gather possessions in order to feel secure, the more we feel we need them in order to be secure, and then the more we need to guard them to maintain our security. I don't know if I put that in the notes, but if I didn't, I'm going to read it again. The more we gather possessions in order to feel secure, the more we feel we need them in order to be secure, and then the more we need to guard them to maintain our security. Therefore, we become anxious. You've probably heard the saying, money doesn't buy happiness. Right? Y'all heard that, that saying? Well, here Jesus tells us why. The second part of chapter, chapter 6 is Jesus answering the question, why ultimately earthly wealth 
does not bring happiness. Because happiness depends on lasting wealth. If you need something to make you happy, and that thing that you need does not last, ergo, ipso facto, your happiness will not last, right? Happiness depends on lasting wealth, on lasting treasures. Have you asked yourself where you're building your treasures? Have you asked yourself what in life do, do, do you count as really important? These questions that, that you kind of wrestle with throughout your week. Questions like, what do you dream about? Or, or more importantly, that, that, that could be weird. That could, could be a lot of weird things you dream about. <laughs> what do you daydream about? What do you spend your days daydreaming about? What are the things of this earth, or just things in general, that your mind defaults to, gravitates towards as goals, as rewards, to one day gain, and then let those be what harness happiness in your life? And perhaps those daydreams are the telltale sign to where your treasure really lies. And perhaps that then reveals where your heart is set. Wrong priorities breed anxious hearts. So the second, the second factor that Jesus can trace or traces to the development of anxiety is thinking about life in the wrong way. So verses 22 through 23 um, serve as a metaphor. Jewish people 2,000 years ago, they spoke differently than we do. They used different terminology than we did. They weren't smarter. We're not smarter. It's not about that. Different culture, different time. Um, they're, 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 um, uh, their metaphors were just different than ours. So you read verses 22 to 23, and I'm telling you, much ink has been spilled on what is trying to be said and what the relationship with the eye and the heart are and just a whole lot of really interesting stuff. But bottom line, the point that Jesus makes is pretty clear. It's not indiscernible. It's not, it's not confusing. I mean, it's pretty clear the point he's trying to make. When our eyes are healthy, our whole body is full of light. But if our eyes are bad, guess what? We're full of darkness. So what does that mean? Well, in the language of Scripture, the eye and the heart, um, um, saying things like set the eye on something or set the heart on something are kind of metaphorical phrases that can probably be used interchangeably. They basically mean the same thing. So to set your eyes on something implies that your heart is set on that as well. To set your heart on something implies that your eyes will be set on that as well. So basically what he's saying is that poor spiritual vision, darkness, not being able to see, or having the wrong spiritual priorities can negatively influence the direction of our lives. How? By being anxious. By producing in us an anxiety. That darkness doesn't allow us to see. So we're always concerned about that which we cannot see. And our focus then becomes on the darkness. 
We could probably see this much, but we're concerned about that one, that right there. So it's this constant state of, of heightened sensitivity to life because we can't see past two inches in front of us. Now, some of you are probably really anxious when I said that. Can you imagine just being able to see two inches in front of you? So that's basically what Jesus is saying. The third thing, I'm kind of rushing through some of these because I'm running out of time. So the third, I guess, diagnosis is serving a master of the wrong kind. Serving a master of the wrong kind can lead to anxiety. Let me add a parenthesis here. Verse 24, if you're using a King James Version Bible a translation, nothing wrong with that. But your trans or a new King James Version would have this as well. Uh, verse 24, you probably have, your verse reads, you cannot serve God and mammon. And you're probably wondering what that word means. It's just a Semitic word that means wealth. Uh, uh, Mammon was not a deity like like uh, like uh, you know some other deity, like an actual thing. It just means wealth. Uh, um, so th- throwing that out there, you cannot serve God in wealth. You cannot serve God in Mammon. You cannot serve God in money. It's just 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 a word that meant wealth. Um, nothing more than that. Notice the implication of verse 24. Read it again. It says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What is Jesus implying there about our natural condition? What are we meant to do? We are meant to serve. We were created to have a master. Now, I realize in 21st century individualistic America, that's very, 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 very uh, um, uh, difficult to hear. And, 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 you know, but this is what the Bible is teaching. We were made to have a master. God made us as His master. He made us for Himself. He is Lord, whether we think so or not. And he, he, we are created in such a way that, that worship, that bent towards serving, which is basically what worship is, is an integral part of our nature. Notice the implication there. That it's, it's not, it's not, there are not three options of life. Serving God, serving money, wealth, or whatever. And not serving is not an option. I, I choose to not pledge my allegiance to something greater than myself. That is not a biblical option. That something greater than myself can ironically be myself. My own interests, my own, which in turn would be wealth, which in turn would be the pursuit of earthly pleasures. But the Bible presents this pretty clear picture that we are created in a state of submission and we will recognize that submission either under God or under something else. So that, that's absolutely key. But the thing is, when we turn from worshiping the Lord, when we turn from worshiping God, when Israel turned from worshiping God, what did they do? They, did they stop worshiping? No. No. They turned to worship what? Idols. Idols. Other gods. 
When we turn from worshiping the Lord, we do not cease to be worshiping creatures. Instead of being servants of the Lord, instead of having God as our master, whose service, by the way, is perfect freedom. That, 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 that's the thing. We have this concept of serving God. We have this co- concept of, of God as our master, as being kind of this, 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 this bondage, kind of enslavement type thing where, where He's whipping us in the back because we're not doing good. No. The service of the Lord is perfect freedom. But when we don't do that, we become slaves to what God has made. Even to what man has made. Earthly possessions. So for the Christian whose calling it is to be the servant of God, such compromise of loyalties leads to uncertainty. And what does uncertainty breed? Anxiety, fear, and ultimately spiritual disaster. We love one master here, we love another master there, we serve one master then, we serve another master tomorrow. It is absolutely vital for our spiritual well-being that the question of our devotion be settled once and for all. This is what Jesus is getting at to here. You cannot serve God and money. You have to choose. He's actually being kind enough to giving us the option. Have you resolved this issue in your life? Have you, have you asked yourself these kind of, kind of uh, existential questions about wh- wh- where your loyalties are in life? The Apostle Paul speaks about this uh, in an interesting way. In 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking to a church that, that he wants this church to be free from anxiety that, that would kind of distract from their witness and, and give them kind of a bad reputation. And he says, 1 Corinthians 7, 29-32, he tells them, What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. So, do you see why Jesus earlier, I made the point, do you see why he's, he's teaching his disciples, look, set your eyes on heavenly rewards. Because you'll be able to keep those one day. The ones that you're wasting your life on right now, they're not going with you. And it's fascinating. Humanity through, throughout history, so um, the Egyptians, back in Exodus, those Egyptians... Um, the, you know, pharaohs were buried with their possessions, which, by the way, included included people and servants. So, how, how, how's that for a bad deal? If you serve the pharaoh and he died, and he wait a minute, I don't want to die, and you and you got killed, and you were buried with them because they believed they believed that the material stuff came with you to the afterlife, right? Well, the Bible teaches that there is something of wealth, of rewards, that awaits for us in the afterlife. I like to call it the everlasting life rather than the afterlife. But that's not the stuff that we have here. That's not jackets and shoes and cars and and money. All that stuff is gone. Proverbs speaks to that kind of at length. But what Paul means here as Jesus is that life in the kingdom of God calls for single-minded allegiance to the king. 
how then do we interact with the stuff that we have? How then do we interact with stuff that we could categorize as earthly uh, wealth? We're to be stewards of everything we have. I think that's what Paul's point is trying to, uh, the, the, the point he's trying to make. Family, home, business, uh, material stuff. It's, they're not inherently bad. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if you have more than X amount, get rid of it or something bad's going to happen to you. But the thing is, and this might shock you, the stuff that you have, you don't actually possess. Amen. I'm going to say it again. The stuff that you have, you don't actually possess. And I can prove it to you. If you were to die right now, who does your stuff belong to? Not you. This is not yours. Now, scripturally speaking, the argument is even heavier. Who is the Father? Who, uh, who, who is the giver of all good things? The Father, right? I gave you the answer. I had that kind of <laughs> moment in my mind of, of clear thought, lucid thought. God has blessed us with things. He, is, he owns uh, the, the, the hill and the thousand cattle on it. Everything in the world is His as Creator. And He has blessed us with these things. So, even though we might have them, we can't lay claim on them because they weren't ours to begin. They are gifts given by the Lord. The blessings of His rule over us. This is how God manifests that rule over us. This is how God manifests that king-like domain over us. This is what serving a good master looks like. He blesses us. He gives us the possessions that we need to endure this life. A bad master does not. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Nevertheless, these things are never to become our masters or even to compete with Him for mastery over us. So that's, that's kind of the diagnosis of, of anxiety, what produces anxiety. But that would be pretty useless information. It'd be good information, thought-provoking information, could lead us on a hunt to try and determine how then do you cure it. How do you get rid of it? So I told you, you have a problem. Okay? Y'all, you have a problem. Okay? Amen. Let's go to... You know, <laughs> totally non-helpful. How do you get rid of it? What does Jesus prescribe as the means to deal with this pretty significant condition that He seems to say we all have? Three things. So I try to be consistent. Three and three. Look at the whole of life. Not look at life as a whole. Or look at your whole life. But look at the whole of, of life. Of creation. Of the world. Let me ask you a question. Have, have you ever noticed what happens when you become anxious about something? Like, like what, what happens in your thought process? How does your mind develop thoughts when anxiety has creeped in? Yes. You are dominated by that thing. You see everything in light of that thing. 
So your, 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 your mind is, is, is just dominated in your thinking. You see everything in the, in the light of that anxiety. It seems that everything depends on resolving that particular anxiety. Everything in your life seems to be related to that particular anxiety. And you get caught in this circle. When your anxiety is about what you eat or drink, for example, it is no longer bef- uh, before your whole life and your happiness seems to depend on these things. So then life, so fo- so, so life becomes finding the right food or life becomes finding the right clothing or life becomes, and because you don't have the right food and the right clo- clothing, so it's just this perpetual cycle of, 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 of anxiety. These are basic things that we need. These are basic, if I could use the word, servants in our lives. But they become our masters. Because they are the ones telling us how to live our lives. We're not indifferent to eating, drinking, or clothing. We, we need these things. These are necessities for living in this world. But they are never our masters. We don't need the best food. I need better food. If not, I would have not had gout. But um, you know, watch what I eat. But the point I'm trying to make is Jesus' teaching that life is more than food and, and clothing it is so simple that that we we just overlook it. We 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 overlook it and and we don't understand the um, the harm that. It does to us. Jesus says that life is more than food. Life is more than clothing. Life is more than the material stuff. The person whose life is expressed through a body that seeks food and, 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 and clothing and all that kind of stuff. Jesus is saying that that person is more valuable, more important than the stuff he is pursuing. So thinking about life as a whole... He tells them that the birds of the air and the flowers of the field demonstrate what, what, what an incredible designer and provider God is. So if He provides with tender, father-like care for these things that, while they're important, do not have the, the value significance that we do, how much more then will He provide for people, for the people whom He has purchased at the infinite cost of the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, when we think about the whole of life, that is a cure for anxiety. Can we not believe, brothers and sisters, that the Lord will provide everything we need to live? If so, then why are we anxious? Why are we concerned that God would treat earlier the, or, or, or back in, on Friday? I'm, I'm sitting under one of these trees that Kevin has so just wonderfully um, just done a lot of gardening and yard work, and everything looks so nice because of Kevin's hard work. And, I'm, and it was a beautiful day; it was cool. And uh, I'm, I'm like. Kids came in and just wanted to. My wife brought me lunch and I had a great time. And I'm sitting underneath a tree and um, have my, my one year old son. And I look up for some reason, my eyes are drawn up. And the one tree I'm sitting under is just full of those stinging caterpillars. 
I mean, they're everywhere. And I'm holding my one-year-old, and I'm like, uh, this is not good. So I kind of bolt, you know. Now, I have no use for stinging caterpillars. Okay, If you're, if you're from New Orleans, if you've been around long enough, those things are demonic. Okay, You can quote me on that. Okay, Yet, yet, every time around this time of year, God provides for these demonic creatures. He cares for them. He, he makes trees that they can eat and they can fall off and fall on our heads and sting us. If God shows concern for that insignificant, dangerous creature, how much more do you think He is concerned for those whom His Son has died for? Why then are we anxious about life? The second antidote to anxiety is to look at the nature of life. Verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 27, he, he asked the question, you know, who, who, who can add a single hour to his life? <laughs> I mean, that's just like, that's almost insulting, you know. It's like, are you really that thick-headed? I mean, really? You don't tell an anxious person to stop it. And, and that, that seems to be what Jesus is doing. Stop it. Stop being anxious. But who can? Who, who can add a single hour to their life? Well, the answer is obviously no one. Worrying, the point Jesus is trying to make is worrying never got anyone anywhere. But his point is actually more profound than that. He's been speaking about the Father's provision. Now he underlines something about the Christian life. He's going to say, your life is in the hands of your Father. He has designed it. He knows the end of it from the beginning. He plans each step of the way to fulfill His purpose for you and through you. As a result, you will have all you need to fulfill that purpose which I sovereignly decreed. And when that purpose is accomplished, you will then be taken home to be with me. Why then are we Anxious. God has authored the seconds of our lives, is intricately aware with every moment that lapses. And if God has determined in His sovereign will to have placed a purpose for your life, it is impossible for that purpose to not be met because you failed to have the earthly stuff that you needed to get you to meet that purpose. Do you see? God has made you. And if God has put purpose in your life to glorify Him, there is nothing that can happen to keep you from attaining that which you need to achieve the purpose that God has set for your life. Our worry, our anxiety is a sign that we do not adequately know God. Or, even worse, that we don't trust Him. 
Maybe we haven't yielded to His sovereign rule. He is our master. It is only when we want to take our lives out of the Father's hands and have them under our own control that we find ourselves gripped with anxiety. Why? Because we, we are incapable of meeting our own very needs. That's the point. We're shooting ourselves in the foot and then starting the marathon. We can't, get, we, we can't meet our own needs, so we place that burden on our shoulders, and that's just a recipe for spiritual anxiety. The secret of freedom from anxiety is freedom from ourselves and the abandonment of our own plans. The third antidote that Jesus gives us is how He ends this section. He says in verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek the righteousness of God. I started talking about the rewards that come as we seek righteousness. So he's telling us again, Seek the righteousness of God. And all these things will be added to you. Anxiety can never... I want you to listen to this. Anxiety can never be cured by getting more of what we already have. If you're anxious because there's not enough money in the bank, guess what? Your money could... multiply times 10. And that would not remove your anxiety. Anxiety can only be cured by the assurance that all our needs will be met by our King. The ultimate cure of spiritual anxiety is to rest on the goodness of God, to seek Him and His kingdom and to rest on the assurance that His reign over our lives is good. The chief drive in our lives should be to live under the authority of this King and to see His kingdom extended in every possible way. When our hearts are set on His righteousness pervading our lives, we have our priorities in order. And we'll discover two things, and I'll close with this. First, all we need, He will provide. I'll say that again. All we need, He will provide. God has never failed to provide for one of His children. And He is not about to start now. Now, let me qualify that by this second realization that we'll come to. Many of the things we thought we needed, we now discover that we actually didn't really need. And what God does in our hearts is even take that to the next step. We no longer want them. Life then becomes not about multiplying that bank account times 10. Life now becomes about enjoying God's goodness. And if and so God chooses to multiply that bank account times 10, it really won't be that big of a deal. He hasn't done it in my bank account, but I'm telling you with, with folks that I've, with testimonies I've, I've heard from, 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 from people, God's goodness 
is the source for the cure of our spiritual anxiety. Let me pray for us as we close. Ran out of time. I think I covered most of it. But let's pray that God would see fit to help us in our time of weakness. That He would fill us with love towards Himself. That He would fill our mind with thoughts of His greatness, of His goodness. That He would bend our hearts to trust Him. That He would help our wills be submitted to His. And that He would help us submit to His rulership over our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is good. Your Word is perfect. Your Word revives the soul. It illumines our paths. It instructs us in how to live. It reminds us of who You are, Father. And again, we've been reminded that our failings, as it pertains to anxiety in this case, come as a result, Father, of our obsession with ourselves. We trust ourselves more than we should, and we fail to trust You like we should. So, Father, help us and remind us of Your goodness, O God, that You have set forth heavenly rewards in Christ that far surpass anything we have here and anything we'll ever attain here. But God, help us in the moments of weakness. Fill our hearts with love for You. Fill our minds with with purposeful direction to, to expand Your kingdom and to submit to Your rule in Your kingdom. Now, Father, we pray that You guide our hearts and You guide our minds to join with the rest of the body, Father. We pray that Your Word as it's preached, Father, would come into our hearts and begin to transform us as it has just now during this session that we would sing boldly, Father, as we profess the truths of the gospel, and that, Lord, your church would rejoice in salvation as our hearts get ready to the celebration of Easter next week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.